the sun New journey has just begun Hey, hey, hey Bring your drums and your guitars Play the music of your heart Hey, hey, hey Okay, well, welcome everybody to the next edition of our podcast um, We're very pleased to have with us this evening Joel Brown, who is come all the way from Chicago, where he works at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Joel. Thank you very much. As usual, we'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your work, how, what you studied, and how you ended up working on what you're working on. So, esoterically, I would be called an evolutionary ecologist, which if we kind of deconstruct that into sort of plain English, that means somebody who studies ecology and studies animals and plants through their adaptations, through their characteristics. Part of my upbringing was in Zimbabwe that gave me a love of animals and always loved the wildlife. Uh, but then at that point when I went to college at Pomona College in California, directly from Zimbabwe, I began as a chemistry major. One of my hobbies in high school was playing with chemistry. You might say actually making bombs. As I was in college, as for many of us, it was transformative. And I took a class in economics, and in economics... Um, I was mesmerized by their theories, the idea that you could make a few assumptions about people. Now, arguably, if you assume that people are rational, that they're greedy, that they're profit-oriented, uh, you can build a whole theoretical construct about how a system will work. Of course, we know how well economics actually works in practice, but that's okay. I loved the ideas. And so at that point, I actually switched to being an econ major. Uh, but as you look at me right now, you can tell I don't look like an economist. I didn't look like any of the other students. I didn't actually want to do career-wise any of what they did, although those are great careers and great opportunities in finance, business, other sorts of things. Um, I was just in love with their theories. My big break came as a sophomore, as often happens for students when they're in college. There was Bill Wirtz, who was advertising for undergraduate research assistance in fire ecology. I didn't know what ecology was, but fire, I knew I could do that. If he needed fires, I was his person. Kindly, he hired me. We actually did not set any fires, rather disappointing. But in fact, what we did was study the ecology of reptiles, of birds, of mammals in the mountains around Los Angeles. And as you well know, that's a system that is often in flames come August and September. And it was studying the effects of fire and the succession that went on. And at that point... I couldn't believe it. I was working in these ecological systems, but I was working with the sorts of things I loved. And it was at that moment was my epiphany. I liked to teach, I liked research, and I loved nature. So at that point, went to the University of Arizona, got a doctorate in ecology and evolutionary biology with a minor in economics. I couldn't let go completely. And then went on to the University of Illinois at Chicago, which has been my career for the last 27 years. I, I think I took a far more standard path in mine. So David kindly says of you that you're a bit like Indiana Jones without the archaeology or the Nazis. How close is that to the truth? Well, at one level, thank you. I'm flattered. And when I'm dealing with people who live in cities who are not used to much of nature, simply picking up a spider or grabbing a garter snake can give the sense of being Indiana Jones. I do have a leather Australian bush hat that I like to wear when I'm out in the field. However, among some of my hardcore mammologist colleagues or whatnot, they would laugh or they would choose their own stories. But I must confess, I do thrive on adventures in nature. And part of the excitement then of working in the field of ecology is working with systems. 
in which you are not completely in control. And this is the really neat thing, is that you actually get to travel an awful lot to go and study a certain... You have quite a wide-ranging number of species that you look at. So the joke in my lab or among my graduate students is I do not choose the study species. Mm -hmm. Rather, my graduate students do. But most importantly, I have really thrived on the opportunity of forming international collaborations. And that has created a unique opportunity then to be able to work in a number of countries in Africa. And to me, Africa is the best continent on the planet. The sunsets are prettier. The trees look super cool. And many of the people there laugh at my jokes. <laughs> but I've also had the privilege of working with people, snow leopards in Nepal, black rhinos in Kenya, a funny Patagonian rodent in Argentina. We have a current project with domestic dogs in villages on the boundary of the Serengeti. So there's been a unique opportunity then, and I love to travel. Tell me about the species that seems to be your favorite, so much so that your email address is squirrel. So this is a rather embarrassing sort of thing to admit. But as ecologists, we often have a favorite habitat, we have favorite organisms, and we have favorite things we like to do. So true confessions, uh, my absolutely favorite organisms are rodents, rats, mice, and squirrels, and squirrels in particular. Uh, some people have argued it's because they're not the smartest animals in the world, and so they don't give me an inferiority complex. But I thrive on rodents. I think they're absolutely wonderful. Deserts are probably my favorite ecosystem. And I think my favorite thing to do, maybe because I'm a bit of a foodie, is to feed animals. You say you're an evolutionary ecologist. What would an average day be for you? An average day as an academic usually means starting the day with a long list of promises and ending the day having kept only a small number of them. My ordinary activity, of course, as a teacher, I have the privilege of teaching courses in ecology at the University of Illinois Chicago. I have the privilege of teaching undergraduates the field ecology class. So I have the opportunity of taking them out to natural areas. I love it. Um, obviously, I train and mentor graduate students whose research is all around the world with very diverse numbers of species. And then there's kind of my own sort of research angle and research approach. And on a day-to-day -day basis, what that means then is getting animals through their behavior to reveal what is important about their environment. So the way we approach it is we either naturally or we create experimental food patches in which we make the animals work for their food. By doing so, we're able to see how hard they're willing to work. And so by way of example, um, do you like peanut butter? I know many people have a peanut butter allergy. You love peanut butter. Then look, we're going to be on the same wavelength. Wouldn't you agree that a fresh jar of peanut butter is as near as you can get to a spiritual experience. You take off that lid, you've got that stay fresh sealer and you pop it off and there's often even a little belly button where whatever is the machine is that plopped all the stuff in there. The flip side, wouldn't you agree that there's nothing more frustrating than an empty peanut butter jar? Yes. You had that moment where you're sitting there with the tip of the knife scraping the little bit out of the bottom and whatnot and you're tearing up the bread for a paltry amount of peanut butter and because you're environmentally minded and you're green, you know you shouldn't throw it away and waste it. But in fact, this is becoming exceedingly frustrating. So the idea then is that most organisms, just like humans, experience feeding experiences that deplete with time. They begin immensely satisfying you're a squirrel going for acorns underneath a tree where they've just fallen. Initially, finding acorns is easy. It's a spiritual experience for the squirrels. And then it gets harder and harder and harder for the squirrels. And eventually, they reach a point where they give up. And it's not actually empty. The acorns are not all gone. And it is that point at which they give up. 
if you do the experiments correctly, and I won't go into the esoteric details, but basically, as you can imagine, a fat squirrel will give up sooner than a hungry squirrel. A squirrel that is frightened will give up sooner than a squirrel that is not frightened. A squirrel living in a rich environment in which there are plenty of other things to do will give up sooner than a squirrel that has no other opportunities. And so the squirrel, just like the person, the point at which we cease or give up on an activity is immensely revealing about what is important to that animal. In the same way that many sociologists learn the most about humans by digging through our trash, in a sense then a lot of the work I do with animals is examining what they leave behind is a way of discovering what is important to them. And so what does your research actually entail? As ecologists, we often want to know, is this habitat suitable for an endangered species? We have the red-cockaded woodpecker in northern Florida and southern Georgia. What kind of longleaf pine habitat must we have for the species to succeed? If we have a species of wolf, how do we bring them back? And indeed, it's an incredibly important part of ecology then to imagine the habitat requirements, the perceptions of animals. But generally what we're doing is we are through their demography. Are their populations going up? Are their populations going down? We usually are trying to measure just how high is the water in the Titanic? How close are we to sinking? Or how close are we to succeeding? So I guess my approach would be characterized by the fact that the animals likely know. A squirrel likely knows that it's starving or not. A squirrel likely knows it's in an incredibly superb habitat. A squirrel knows if it's in a risky habitat or a food-rich habitat. And so for me, my approach then is literally a sort of Dr. Doolittle. Can we actually speak to the animals and through their behaviors uh, learn about what's important to them in their environment? Is the idea that you would be trying to protect all species or are you just trying to observe them? It depends upon the project. If we're working um, with two really fine scientists, Somali Mahesh Karung, two of my former graduate students, where we were working on snow leopards. The object of the study then was to see if we could determine the whereabouts of snow leopards and could we determine the status of their population. What made the approach unique or different was rather than trying to find snow leopards directly, which can be rather challenging, we actually decided to ask the experts their prey the blue sheep and the Himalayan tar that fall prey to the snow leopards, they likely know everything we want to know about snow leopards. Where are the snow leopards? How many of them are there? They've had aunts, uncles, nieces, sons that have been eaten by snow leopards. So in that project, as an example then, our goal was to, through observing the fear behavior of the blue sheep and the Himalayan tar, we could actually count the snow leopards. So in that case, it had a very definite application. The interest then was very, very much applied. Um, other circumstances, it's just the delight of understanding how systems work. So with squirrels, we have several species of urban squirrels. Simply understanding why my backyard has fox and gray squirrels and somebody else's backyard in Chicago has gray squirrels makes me happy. Why do you think you have black squirrels and other people have the gray ones? Well, thank you for asking. Actually, one of the things we have been able to determine by working in urban ecology, working with squirrels that, of course, are very ubiquitous, you can find them everywhere. In fact, everybody has a squirrel story, so thank you for asking mine. Um, it turns out, interestingly, the gray squirrel, which is very typical through the eastern half of the United States and the Midwest, they are 
better at competing with squirrels. In fact, they've got to the point where they've gotten rid of the red ones in the UK, I believe. We don't see them anymore. Jokingly, we might say that's our revenge for their starling. It's nice to know that Queen Elizabeth, when she gets into her carriage, comes out of Buckingham Palace. The first mammal, wild mammal, to meet her will be the eastern gray squirrel. So by studying the eastern gray squirrels, we've been able to understand how they coexist with the many species of squirrels we find in Chicago or in the Midwest, but we also gain insights into why they're an invasive species. And quite serious, then it becomes a serious conservation problem in a place like England. You said you had squirrel stories. Well, so I think probably one of my... uh, Favorite squirrel stories is uh, in my backyard I have two species, the gray squirrel, which as I indicated, sort of is smarter and more sophisticated in competing with other squirrels. You might say they are city folk. And then I have the eastern fox squirrel. Uh, They're orange. Sometimes people call them the brown squirrel or have some other name for them. Um, They are often described as being more like country folk. And so on my backyard, of course, I like to feed squirrels. Of course, really, you shouldn't do this. I don't recommend this as a wildlife biologists I'm supposed to tell you not to but of course squirrels are fun to feed and so the fox squirrels will come up they will take a peanut from my hand they will then run into my backyard and bury it and then immediately return for another peanut and then the gray squirrel sitting in the apple tree will simply come down from the apple tree dig up the peanut and run off with it and the fox squirrel will continue this Sisyphean task of harvesting peanuts from me to feed the gray squirrels Is that why the ones I saw in Boston are so big? So this is very nerdy, but very exciting. Um, There is something called Bergman's Rule. Bergman was a German fellow who observed in the 19th century that a given mammal species or closely related mammals get bigger as you get into colder latitudes. And so as you move from Florida to Chicago, Florida to Boston, the deer are small down here. They get bigger around Chicago. Your raccoons are smaller. They get bigger around Chicago. And indeed, it just makes me happy every time I come down here to Florida to see the little gray squirrels that scamper around the University of South Florida campus. And that, yes, as soon as you go north, you get to see real gray squirrels, chunky gray squirrels. So it's kind of cool. So in that example, you actually are having a chance to see evolution in action. You are having a chance to experience evolutionary ecology. So the idea then that as you get into colder climates... It's a good idea to have a bit less surface area per volume. It's a little bit better to be chunkier as a way of generating and conserving heat um, than down in the south. And so simply observing that and saying, my God, those Boston squirrels are big. You are actually experiencing ecology and evolution up close and personal. Uh, When people hear what you do, you must get the standard questions. Oh, well, you know, there are all these missing links, so... How do you prove evolution is real? So, first off, several features. One is, of course, um, if you are trying to look for gradual evolution, say, from one species into another, um, it becomes, in a sense, almost comical because every time you find a missing link, guess what? You now need to find two more to fit in between the others. But more specifically, as a scientist, uh, my job is to be able to discover facts and create ideas. It's not to deal with ultimate questions, say, of spirituality, other types of beliefs, um, and, of course, our own belief system of where we live. Those are really important discussions, and I find it very easy personally to have a deep respect for other people's views and perspectives on these. But as a scientist attempting to understand the diversity of nature around us, to understand the organisms and their characteristics, um, at this point in time, 
Evolution by Natural Selection provides the most useful and usable explanation in theory then for the diversity of characteristics. As well as doing your field work, you also do a lot of modeling and theory work. And David would like to know, which of the two do you find more interesting? You know, this question of going out and discovering facts in nature, which we would call then standard mud-in-boots field biology. And then the idea of doing things in theory. You imagine that mathematician or that person up against a whiteboard scribbling equations. Often in our field, people will specialize or one in the other. So I have colleagues that are amazing mud and boots ecologists. And then there are actually sitting at this table, fine theoreticians, mathematicians, biomathematicians. So a lot of it is being true to oneself. So in my case, I actually require both. And I discovered that fairly early in my career, that when I'm out doing ecology and I'm in the field having unique opportunities to follow rhinoceros or unique opportunities to be playing with rattlesnakes or working with rattlesnakes in desert environments or even my squirrels, I begin to ask questions about why. And the ideas that I carry with me into the field very quickly become inadequate. And as that inadequacy builds, that sort of dissonance between what I am observing and what I thought I would be observing builds... I'm forced back into the science building and I find myself in front of the computer, in front of the chalkboard with colleagues who are excellent mathematicians beginning to integrate these new facts into why was I so wrong. And as a consequence then, that develops new ideas and theories. Now the ideas and theories can become intoxicating in themselves. Theory is a, is a, is a wonderful activity. Everything in theory is great. Um, but after a while, I begin to lose confidence that my tether is getting farther and farther away from the nature that I'm trying to explain. And there are more and more ifs, like a good conspiracy theory. Well, if this happens and if this happens, and as soon as the number of ifs that are kind of strung together like beads on a chain becomes too long, I need to get my boots on put my hat back on, get back out into the field, and get a reality check. So actually, to answer that question, um, I would not be able to function personally as a scientist without doing both. So do we need to care about koalas or just about species playing key roles in the ecosystem? You know, what is wonderful about that question is throughout human history, there has been both the nature around us, there has been the nature we have modified, some would say destroyed, some would say degraded, some might even say improved depending upon your taste. But paralleling human impact on nature has also been a parallel of human ethics and our natural ethics. And I know this may sound like a political answer that's trying to dodge around it, but I will kind of get to the point. What is true is some species are what we call ecological engineers. A beaver builds a dam, a prairie dog covers a landscape and pockmarks it with so many holes and burrows. An elephant may turn a forest into a savanna fact, humans are the most extreme ecological engineer this planet has ever seen. All you have to do is look at those Google images of how we light up the earth at night. So fact is, we have had a tremendous impact on the nature around us. Now, what is our responsibility to the other denizens on this planet? And I will use the koala bear. Uh, the answer is actually in your own heart and soul. 
I do not have the answer nor pretend to have the answer. As a citizen on this planet, I would recommend that everybody examine what is their natural ethic. Is there a sacred duty to keep the koala bear around simply because we do not have the right to cause species to go extinct? Or is it purely utilitarian? It's not hard to keep koalas around. Eucalyptus trees are kind of fun. And look at all those photo ops you can get by holding a cute koala bear from a rehab center in your arm. Who couldn't love them? And they're not even bears at all. They're marsupials. So that makes them even cooler. That may be good enough. There is something aesthetically pleasing. Or maybe you are utilitarian. There has to be something essentially useful for it in us. In which case, no, I'm not going to try to argue the koala bears are somehow essential to global climate change. I will not argue that koala bears are somehow causing nutrient cycles that guarantee high fertile soils in Australia, in which case, no, the koala bear may not stack up very high on a utilitarian basis. But I would offer the one observation. We do not know what our grandchildren will like or not like on this planet. And like anything, do we really want to remove options and heritage from future generations? So I don't know what people two generations down will think of a koala bear. I think they're great. I love them. But of course, I love nature. But do we want to remove that opportunity of future generations to hold that koala bear? So I think two things are important. One is having a discussion of natural ethics is absolutely critical. And what we realize is generally our own natural ethic is just as personal is having a language or having any kind of ingrained cultural attribute. And so just like I know I don't have an accent, I don't know why you have an accent, but that's really cool, but I know I don't, I think we need to understand that when I have a natural ethic, that is a moral, ethical, or utilitarian perspective that is part of my culture, and I think we have to respect other people's natural ethics as well. Given how different your work is compared to what you did as an undergraduate, would you have changed anything if you started now as your student? You know, I think there's, it's like those sci-fi movies. There's always that risk that if you change something, that it will have unintended consequences down the line. So I guess the way I would observe is, I don't know if you remember Umberto Eco, the Italian. He's the Italian author that wrote Name of the Rose and wrote a number of books that otherwise are a bit deep um, and perhaps a bit wordy. Um, but he was asked a question that was really fascinating. And I don't know where these journalists come up with these questions, but he was asked, what is the difference between real life and fiction? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure how I would answer it. But he had an answer right off the bat. And it was a fascinating one. He said, the difference between real life and fiction is that in fiction, everything happens for a purpose. And in real life, nothing happens for a purpose. So I was a little bit mildly depressing. Um, you know, as a scientist, there was a point there, and arguably I'm not sure what it means. So I would like to modify that a little bit. And I would say a life well lived, whether it has purpose or not, I don't know. But a life well lived will look as if everything happened for a purpose.
European swallows would it take to carry a coconut? Forty-seven. I expected it to be forty-two. Yes. I, I, I wanted a margin of error on that. But I would actually like to know what would a squirrel do with a coconut? Would a squirrel just consider it to be the largest seed it ever saw? Would its eyes get this big around? Would it become like Scrat in Ice Age? And imagine that if I could just bury that nut into the ground, I would be set for life. So yes, knowing how many swallows would take to carry a coconut, I love the question. But if I can switch it to what would a squirrel do with a coconut, we have a research plan. Love is our new superfood, medicine for mind and body. listening to a two scientists podcast now if you'd like to keep up with our new releases you can follow us on twitter at 2scis facebook or google plus using the handle two scientists or for the more old school among you you can check out our website at two scientists.org thanks for tuning in to reincarnate as a squirrel and if so red or gray if i could be the north american red squirrel in which they are monogamous they mate for life they keep house together they gather their food all into a similar pantry they share in the raising of their young i'd like to be a north american red squirrel <laughs>